0: Well, take your Bibles this morning and turn to Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 11, Proverbs chapter 11, our theme this year, and it's not a secret, it's not something that uh, you don't know, but our theme this year is each one reach one, and that's our job as a Christian. I say this all the time, but it's so true, the reason God does not call us home the moment we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior is because he has a job for us to do. He wants us to be holy. He wants us to be righteous. He wants us to grow in our relationship with him. But one of the primary things that God wants us to do on this earth is to win other people for Jesus Christ. To see other people come to know Jesus Christ as their savior. And the message is very simple this morning. I have very little by way of introduction because I want to get right into the message this morning. But the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 11 and verse number 30. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. And he... That winneth souls is wise. That word soul winning. Every time I type it into my computer, it gives me that little squiggly line under it and says it's not a right word. You know, I want you to change it. But that word soul winning is a word that comes directly out of the word of God. He that winneth souls is wise. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning is just some thoughts about this, the wise Christian. The wise Christian. Let's pray. And then we'll look at some of these things this morning. Father, we love you. Again, we thank you so much for how good you are to us. What a blessing it is to be in this place. God, I pray that you'd speak to our hearts this morning about our desires. pray that you'd speak to our hearts this morning about our willingness to be a soul winner for Jesus Christ. And that the fruit of this message and the fruit of this theme this year would, that many, would be that many people come to know you as their Savior. Because we become soul winners for Jesus Christ. pray that you'd bless the message this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. First thing I want you to see is this, the worth of a soul. The worth of a soul. Turn over to Matthew chapter 16. We'll get there in just a minute. But the value of a thing depends on its intrinsic worth. It depends on what it costs in time. It depends on what it cost in labor and sacrifice, what had to be done to obtain it or to secure it. For gold, men leave home, they leave uh, they leave loved ones, they leave security to go overseas, they go across continents to to go up the tallest mountains, they'll do it in any kind of weather, storms, heat, cold, it doesn't matter to them in their search for this gold. They'll face peril, they'll face starvation, they'll face the sword in the hopes of reaching and finding gold. Many stories have been told of men who found only death in their search for that precious metal, and I know uh, back in the 1840s, the 49ers, right? The San Francisco 49ers got their name from the gold rush of 1849. People were out there in search of that treasure, and most of them never found it. But a lot of people will pass through the same experience to find a diamond, and they'll do that to be able to, in time, maybe sell that thing that will one day flash from the hand of an engaged woman, or maybe even adorn the crown of a, of a king, But gold and diamonds and political power and all the glory in the world are not all that there is in the world. Those all perish when they're used up. Put all the material things, known and unknown to man, on one side of the scale and put the immortal soul of one man on the other. And what would be the result? The soul of a man far outweighs all of those material things. During the World's Fair in Chicago, There was one place in the Manufacturers and Liberal Arts building in the Tiffany exhibit that could barely be approached because day or night the building was just flooded with people. And of course, you know, we don't have these world's fairs anymore, but they used to be a big thing. It was the place where many new inventions were introduced. It was the place where a lot of, uh, basically all of the new technology that had come out this year was available for anybody that wanted to go and see it. And one of the things that was there in this exhibit... um, and this was actually this was actually told by uh, R. A. Torrey. He was a well-known evangelist back in the early 1900s as well. But he said he was there, and time and time and time again, he could never get close enough to even be able to see what was on display in that case, without having to try to look over people's heads, and without having to try to get a little glimpse here and there as people moved around in front of this item that was sitting there. And what were they looking at? Nothing but a cone of purple velvet revolving upon its axis, and in the middle of that cone was a large, beautiful diamond that was almost priceless in its worth. And he tells this story, and he said it was well worth looking at, but he never recalled that scene, but he thought over and over and over again about the single soul of the raggedest pauper on the street, the single soul of the most degraded woman, of the most Ignorant boy or girl on the street, and he thought how infinitely much more the value of a soul is in God's sight than 10,000 gems like that. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 16, and verse number 24, then said Jesus unto his disciples, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. And whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited? If he gained the whole world and lose his own soul, or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Boys, sometimes that seems kind of contradictory. Verse 25 says, for whosoever will save his life shall lose it. What is that talking about? That's trying to say that a man that spends his own life living his life the way that he wants to live it is going to lose his life. But a man who follows God's plan, a man who accepts Jesus Christ as his Savior and gives up his life is going to find real life. He's going to find eternal life. And then he asked such an important question. For what is a man profited if he gained the entire world and lose his own soul? Do You know what God is saying there? That a soul is worth more than everything that we could gather together, everything that we can add together in this entire world is not worth more than one soul to Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon, the man that wrote the book that we're reading, implored us to consider how precious a soul must be when God and the devil are both after that same soul. There's another truer method of determining the value of a soul, and that's God's estimate. The real worth of anything depends on what the one knowing its value is willing to pay for it. He created the soul. He knew its worth, and so in exchange for your soul and mine, God gave his only begotten son to die on the cross for us. That redemptive price The Bible says, not with corruptible things as silver and gold, but the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That's what he paid for your soul. That's what he paid for my soul. That's what he's paid for the souls of everyone in the entire world. And that's the highest gift and the brightest glory that heaven could afford was the death of the only begotten Son of God. Turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. Some years ago in Salt Rapids, Minnesota, two farmer brothers were digging a well, and as they, well, one was down in the well with a bucket, the other one was at the top with the, uh, they call it a windlass, but the thing that they used to wind the bucket up with, and the man who was digging down in the well struck quicksand, and immediately all the sand began to fill back into that hole that he was in, and fortunately there was a, it was a good broad piece of wood that they had down there, and so he got his head right up underneath that thing, and he was able to get just a pocket of air. And the brother that was up on the top went and, and, and just you know made it known in the whole city, the whole town, that his brother was down in that well, and they needed as many guys as they could get to come down and help them dig. And so they created a 24-hour cycle. These men worked day and night to try to get this man out of that well. And slowly but surely, they finally got down through that quicksand, and they made it to this man. They pulled him out, and the whole township working together to dig out one man to save one life, Was it worthwhile? Absolutely it was. And the man telling this story said, I saw that man walking with my own two eyes. And he said, you know, the worth of one physical soul. And yet, Christ dug very deep to save our spiritual souls as well. Luke chapter 19 and verse 10 tells us exactly why Jesus came to this earth. He didn't come because he was trying to gain glory for himself. He didn't come because he was trying to make a name for himself or to become a a good teacher or to become a prophet or to become any of those things. Jesus Christ came for one purpose, and it says this, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. That was me. I was lost. I didn't know Jesus Christ as my Savior. He came for me he came for you and he came for every single soul upon this earth today. Oh, that we would realize the value, the worth of a soul the way that Jesus Christ did. Turn back just a few pages to Luke chapter 15. Don't tell me that one soul is not valuable to God. The Bible says in Luke chapter 15 and verse 7, and Luke chapter 15 is what is known as the, the chapter of lost things. We have the lost coin, we have the lost sheep, we have the lost son. And after each one of these things... Jesus Christ mentioned the value of a soul. He said in Luke chapter 15 and verse 7, I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth, more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. A few verses later in verse 10 he says the same thing basically. Likewise I say unto you there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. Oh a soul is so valuable. It cannot even put a value on a soul. There's millions of them walking around within just a few miles of this place. Many of them without Jesus Christ as their Savior. The worth of a soul. But secondly, I want you to see this, the worthiness of a soul winner. Turn back over to Proverbs chapter 11. First, let me say that you cannot make what you are not yourself. By that I mean this. Look what the first part of that verse in Proverbs chapter 11 says in verse number 30. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. Notice the Bible here says that the righteous are a tree of life. You have to be saved to be righteous. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, then you've not taken that first step. You're not a righteous man if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior. You'll find it virtually impossible the task of winning a soul to Christ if you have not Christ as your own Savior. You cannot go out and make disciples if you're not a disciple yourself. We often hear life is short. Better enjoy it. But how about eternity is long? Better prepare for it. And that's the worth of a soul to Jesus Christ. Oh, make sure you know for sure that you know for sure that you're going to heaven. But the tree of life is in heaven, it's described in Revelation, and you don't have to turn over there, I'll read it to you, but Revelation chapter 22, it says in this, says this in verse number one, and he showed me a pure river of water, of of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb, and in the midst of the street of it and on either side of the river was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. This is an amazing tree, the tree of life. It's nourishing, it's refreshing. It bore 12 different types of fruit. Every month it bore a new type of fruit. It would be amazing to have a tree like that, wouldn't it? It would be great to have a tree like that in the backyard. You know, this month I think I'd like apples. Let's go get all the apples off that tree. I'm tired of apples. Let's have pears. Let's have peaches. Let's have oranges. Whatever. That's what the tree of life is. It's up there in heaven. And and that's the Revelation 22. Boy, you want to get excited. Read Revelation 22 talks about everything that is there in heaven and and just what heaven is going to be like. And and of course, all we have to go off of is our finite minds. All we have to go off of is what we know about what we see in this world. I can guarantee you that heaven is going to be infinitely greater than what we can even comprehend right now. But the tree of life is there in heaven. And the Bible compares the righteous, the fruit of the righteous, to the tree of life. The righteous are a tree of life in their influence. They're a tree of life in their example and in their prayer for the lost. That which the righteous say and do is, as it were, a fruitful tree which delights and feeds many people. Only God can win men to himself, but he has set men and women apart to do the job of bringing them to him. We can't win souls. I cannot. I can't save someone. You know, I think that's a a grievous error of so many religions who try to pretend as if they have the power to forgive somebody's sins. Only God can forgive somebody's sins and only through the blood of Jesus Christ. But we, as men and women and as Christians, have the responsibility and the job, the task of bringing those souls to the foot of the cross. And that's our responsibility. He's depending on us to be his voice on this earth. He's depending on us to be his hands and to be his feet on this earth. He's depending on us to be the tree of life. And I hope that by realizing the value of one soul, It'll follow naturally to realize number three, the wisdom of a soul winner. The Bible says the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he that winneth souls is wise. Turn over to James chapter 5. Winning souls is not just for the pastor, it's not just for somebody who works in what would be considered full time ministry. To win souls should be the principal underlying task of the Christian in the pulpit or the pew. Soul winning should be the ruling passion of our life. Soul winning, the Bible says here, is the sum total of all wisdom. He that winneth souls is wise. A true Christian who neglects to tell other people about Jesus Christ is selfish. Oh, and you have all the reasons why. Oh, I'm not not selfish. I'm just afraid to talk to people. No, you're selfish. Because if you really cared about those souls and if you really had a a picture in your mind of what's going to happen to those souls if they die without Jesus Christ, you would do whatever you had to do. You would overcome anything that you needed to overcome in your personality or in in, in anything to be able to tell those souls about Jesus Christ. Call it what you want, but it's selfishness not to share the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. A true friend will win his friends to Jesus Christ. James chapter 5 and verse 19 says this, Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. A true friend will win his friends to Jesus Christ. The wise man will have a passion for souls. He knows that he must win men one by one. Of course, there's the gospel plan is that People to be, are to be saved, not in masses, but in, as individuals. And certainly there are times in, in certain meetings where, where many people can come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. Look at the example in the Bible at Pentecost. that 3,000 people came to know Jesus Christ as their Savior in one single day. I'm not saying that meetings don't produce good results, but the majority of people have been saved by somebody taking the time to share with them the message of the gospel. Telling of Jesus before... Crowded audiences may be inspiring to a speaker, but it's face-to-face, hand-to-hand work that reaches the heart. And that's why it's so important. That's why I gave these cards out that you write down individual names of people that you want to pray for, individual names of people that you can share the message of the gospel with because they're not one in large crowds. They're one, one by one by one. Christianity has always grown and will always grow by one person telling another person how to be saved. A tells B, B tells C, C tells D, and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. That's how people are one to Jesus Christ. That's how Christianity continues. The feet of every one of us who are saved were turned to the cross through the influence of some one person. Maybe it was through your pastor or through, a, through your neighbor or, th- or, or through a friend or a mother or a teacher, but somebody took the time to share the message of the gospel with you. And that's how you were saved. I think the point is very strikingly demonstrated in the first chapter of the Gospel of John. There we have the story of the rugged, kindly-faced wilderness preacher, John the Baptist. And he's standing there with a couple of his disciples, and he humbly introduced them to the Lamb of God. He said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. Then Andrew went and found the Messiah. And you know what it says immediately after that? then he first findeth his brother Simon. And then Jesus found Philip. It says immediately after that, Philip findeth Nathaniel. When Jesus Christ does something in your heart, when Jesus Christ saves you, you can't help but go out and share the message of the gospel with other people. And I'm not saying that if you have no desire to win souls for Jesus Christ, that you're not saved yourself. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying that you've lost the, the glory You've lost the joy of your salvation. Because when you have that joy of your salvation, you cannot help but tell other people about what Jesus Christ did for you. Someone said that winning a soul to Christ is just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. That's exactly what it is. I'm just a beggar, I'm just a sinner. Jesus Christ has done some amazing transformation in my life, but I'm just a beggar that found bread. I'm just a sinner that found Jesus Christ, and my job and my goal is to tell other people how they can find Jesus Christ too. It's just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. We'll win souls to Christ one by one. An old man was walking along the beach one morning, and he noticed a young man that was picking up starfish that had been washed up onto that sand, and he was picking them up and throwing them back out into the water. And that old man was walking along the beach, and as he gazed kind of across the horizon, he saw just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these starfish that had been washed up onto the shore. And he got a little closer to that young boy that was throwing those starfish back in the sea, and he said, man, there's a whole lot of those starfish there. He said, you know, uh, there's so many starfish that that nothing you can do is even really going to matter. And that little boy picked up another starfish, and he threw it back into the ocean, and he said, it made a difference to that one. And you know, sometimes I think that's the fault that we have in our view. We see the entire world dying without Jesus Christ and we say, what difference can we possibly make in this world? There's so many people that don't know Jesus Christ as their savior. How can I possibly tell everybody about Jesus Christ? Well, we don't have to tell everybody. We just have to tell somebody. And we can make a difference to that one and that one and that one and that one. And if everybody's doing that, We can make an impact on this world for Jesus Christ. But we'll only become soul winners when we have a passion for souls. In the book, The Soul Winner by Charles Spurgeon, which many of you picked up last week, he said this, I believe that much of the secret of soul winning lies in having bowels of compassion and having spirits that can be touched with the feelings of human infirmities. Carve a preacher out of granite, and even if you give him an angel's tongue, he will convert nobody. Put him into the most fashionable pulpit Make his elocution faultless and his matter profoundly orthodox. But so long as he bears within his bosom a hard heart, he can never win a soul. Soul saving requires a heart that beats hard against his ribs. It requires a soul full of the milk of human kindness. This is the pinnacle of success. The true soul winner has to be an enthusiast. There are not victories achieved by the man who is prompted only by a a cold sense of duty. Our hearts have to be white with the fire that burns inside of us to share the message of the gospel. Can I bear to see my friend? Can I bear to see my co-worker die and go to hell? Can I bear to see someone in my own family spend an eternity in a lake of fire? They're dying without Christ? Can I be so nonchalant about their eternal destiny that I can sit by and watch them as they march over the precipice of this life into an eternal hell forever and ever and ever? Few things will give me a passion to win souls like a picture of that soul screaming my name in agony, wondering why I never told them how they could know for sure that they were going to heaven when they die. But I'll have a passion for souls when I have a passion for the one who died for those souls. Oh, I have to love souls. I have to want to see them come to Jesus Christ as their Savior, but I've been summoned to reach souls by the one who deserves a thousand times more than I can ever repay him. He's the one that's called me to win souls to him. It's useless to try to reach souls for Jesus Christ till Jesus Christ is personally my chief and my best friend. My sin caused him to die. His forgiveness, his redemption, his glory gave me eternal life. And I've been summoned by the king of all kings to go and share the news with as many people as I can. There can be no true soul winner who is not a pupil at the feet of Jesus. The worth of a soul. The worthiness of a soul winner. The wisdom of a soul winner. And then lastly, I want you to see this. The wages of a soul winner. It had to start with the W, but what I mean is the reward. What do we get for being a soul winner? When we tell other people about Jesus Christ, we're working together with Jesus Christ. This is an amazing thing. Turn over to Isaiah 51. He'll certainly help us to accomplish what he's called us to do. And boy, to know that when you are telling somebody else about Jesus Christ, he is right there with you, helping you do that job. What a reward. What an honor. We know well that in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus Christ gave what we know as the Great Commission. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. But he says in verse number 20, And lo, I am with you alway, even unto the end of the world. He's with us when we go and win souls for Jesus Christ. But he says this in Isaiah 51 and verse 12 I, even I, am he that comforteth you. Who art thou? that thou shouldest be afraid of a man that shall die, and of the sons of man which shall be made as grass. Oh, I could never talk to that person. I'll tell you, I've got some people on my list of five that are somebodies by our standards. I'm not going to tell you who they are necessarily, but they're people who are high up in our county. They're people who are high up in, in our area. And sometimes you get a little hesitant to approach them about the gospel of Jesus Christ, Well. Who am I to talk to them? Who, what are they going to think? What are they going to say? But look what he says here. Why, why should you be afraid of somebody that's going to die? They're just a person. just They're just going to be made as grass. And I'm with you. I'm here to comfort you in those things. What a promise. What a reward. Second thing is this, and I love this. Daniel chapter 12. Turn over there. When we tell others about Jesus Christ, we're working together with Jesus Christ. But the second thing is that we're going to stand out in heaven forever. You know, we all a lot of people desire to make an impact by the way that they live. And there's so many people who want to make a uh, a name for themselves by being put in the history book or by having their name stamped on some piece of legislation or something like that. But a lot of Christians say that their desire is to stand out in eternity. They want to hear God say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Let me show you how. Look what it says in Daniel chapter 12 and verse number 3. And they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament. And they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. You want to stand out in eternity? Win souls for Jesus Christ. Turn people to righteousness. He says, you'll shine like the brightness of the firmament. You'll stand out forever and ever like the stars in heaven. And then lastly, I want to show you this. Turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And there's so many more rewards of being a soul winner that we could talk about. But we're working together with Jesus Christ. We're going to stand out in heaven forever. But also, there are five crowns that we can earn on this earth that when we get to heaven, we earn as a reward for what we've done on this earth. And those rewards are not so I can... Put them up on my shelf and say, yeah, I got that crown for being a pastor. I got that crown for, uh..." no, it's not for that. It's so that we can take those crowns and cast them at the feet of Jesus Christ. We can lay those crowns at the throne of God to thank him and to try to honor him in the best way that we can for giving us everything that he gave us in this life. But one of those crowns is the crown of righteousness. 1 Thessalonians chapter number 2 and verse number 19, Paul is talking to the Thessalonians and he says this, For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? That crown of righteousness, that crown of rejoicing is a crown that is given to those who win souls for Jesus Christ. And Paul is looking at those that he won, He's talking to the Thessalonians that he was able to reach for Jesus Christ, and he said, what is that crown of rejoicing? It's all of you. It's all of those people who I was able to be there with in heaven because I led them to Jesus Christ. That crown of rejoicing is a crown that belongs to a soul winner for Jesus Christ. I want to earn anything and everything that I can to be able to lay it at Jesus' feet. What a reward for just doing what we've already been commanded to do. But it's still a reward, and it's a reward that I would love to earn when I get to heaven. I want to be a soul winner for Jesus Christ. Let me close by telling you this. The successful winner of souls has to rely less on his own wisdom and more on the wisdom of God. One of the main qualifications of a great artist's brush must be that it yields itself to do whatever the artist wants it to do. It would be pretty funny for a brush to say, no, I'm not painting that. It would be pretty hard for a brush to do that, right? Because a brush just does what the master tells it to do in his hand. That's what a brush does. And a master is able to be the one that just uses that brush as a tool to accomplish what his job is and the beautiful painting that he's trying to make. And that's exactly what our job as Christians are to be. My job is just to be the brush In the master's hand, my job is to just do what he's told me to do and allow him to use me however he wants to use me. I don't have the right to look back at the master and say, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to be used that way. No, I don't have that right. I don't belong to myself. I belong to him. He owns me, and he should be able to use me however he wants to use me. That burden for souls, the wisdom to win souls, the reward for being a soul winner. All comes when we're willing to just give our all to Jesus Christ and let him use us however he wants to use us. It doesn't take take anyone extremely talented. It doesn't take anybody special to be a soul winner. It only takes a person who's willing to go all out for Jesus Christ. He's looking for those who will determine to be wise amongst the foolish decisions that we make every single day of our lives. Allow me to read... To you a poem written by Myra Welch. It's called The Touch of the Master's Hand. It was battered and scarred, and the auctioneer thought it scarcely worth his while to waste much time on the old violin, but he held it up with a smile. What am I bidding, good folks, he cried. Who will start the bidding for me? A dollar, a dollar, then two, only two, two dollars, and who will make it three? Three dollars once, three dollars twice, going for three, but no. From the room far back, a gray-haired man came forward and picked up the bow. Then wiping the dust from the old violin and tightening the loosened strings, he played a melody pure and sweet as a caroling angel sings. The music ceased, and the auctioneer, with a voice that was quiet and low, said, What am I bid for the old violin? And he held it up with the bow. A thousand dollars, and who'll make it two? Two thousand, and who'll make it three? Three thousand once, three thousand twice, and going and gone, said he. The people cheered, but some of them cried. We do not quite understand what changed its worth. Swift came the reply, the touch of the master's hand. And many a man with life out of tune and battered and scarred with sin is auctioned cheap to the thoughtless crowd, much like that old violin. A mess of pottage, a glass of wine, a game, and he travels on. He's going once, going twice. He's going and almost gone. But the master comes and the foolish crowd never can quite understand the worth of a soul and the change that's wrought by the touch of the master's hand. May our testimonies stand out for Christ and be a shining example of what he can and will do for the Christian who's just willing to be a soul winner for Jesus Christ. Soul winners are not the ones that get all the glory. Soul winners are not the ones that are heaped praise upon by crowds of people. But they're the ones that are going to be standing in heaven with a whole crowd of people around them. That crown of rejoicing in their hands. Shining out in eternity forever and ever. Because they were just, willing, Be a soul winner for Jesus Christ. Will you? Let's pray. Father, we love you. Again, we thank you so much for the time we've spent together this morning. God, the potential in this room alone to win souls for you is enormous. If every single person in this room this morning would determine that they're going to win somebody for you, no telling. Number one, who might be in that group? That's one. But number two, what you can do with us. Oh God, I pray that you'd make soul winners out of every single one of us, that you would just eliminate all of our excuses, that you would give us that boldness and the power that we need to share the message of the gospel, and that God, each one of us can reach one person this year. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Thank you that someone took the time to tell me how they could be saved, how, how I could be saved. And I pray that you'd help us to take the time to share that with others. If you would stand at your seats with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, the piano is going to play. And as she does, I pray that you'll let the Holy Spirit work in your heart this morning. If he's spoken to your heart about somebody that you need to share the message of the gospel with, if he's spoken to your heart about a fact that you need a greater desire to win souls for Jesus Christ, won't you come forward and get that right with God this morning? As the piano plays, the invitation is open and you can come.